We go through a lot of emotions in one workday. You feel like a success in the morning and a complete failure by the afternoon. That's why we created our Workplace Affirmation Deck, a 50-card deck to help you cope with every kind of day at the office. It's divided by five emotions. When you're feeling unstoppable, when you're craving change, when you're feeling uncertain, when you totally messed up, and when you just can't even. Prop one on your desk, tuck it in a notebook, or even pass one along to a friend who could use it. Get yours today at girlboss.com slash affirmations. That's girlboss.com slash affirmations. Hello, and welcome back to Girl Boss Radio. I'm your host, Avery. I'm the founder and CEO of Bloom, a workplace design consultancy and a firm believer that work should work for everyone. Today, I'm joined by Arthi Sharma, a powerhouse in venture capital funding. She's a founding partner of Backbone Angels, a collective of all women angel investors who focus on investing in Black, Indigenous, and women of color-led companies. She's also the co-founder of Glee, a Gibe skincare brand, which she started with her siblings. Previously, Arthi rose through the ranks of Shopify, first as a community development manager and then as a director of marketing, working through the software company's $1 billion IPO in 2015. Arthi and I talked about what it was like working at one of the hottest tech startups during its heyday, the power of talking about wealth as a woman of color, and why imposter syndrome might actually be good for you. Let's get into it. Arthi, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. I am so excited to have this conversation today. You're doing like a little dance. <laughs> I'm excited too. We're friends. We've worked together. And I'm a big fan of Glee, her newest venture. Recently, you posted a selfie on Instagram because you're just like, have like the best style. And it's the red Aritzia accordion spiral skirt. I didn't get my hands on it. And every single time you busted out, I'm like, damn it. <laughs> it's so funny. I think I have it in every color. It suits my body type really well. And like where it cuts is nice. Yeah. So anyway, I am really excited to just dive in because I feel like I know a lot about you. But what I found is whenever I have friends on the podcast, I learn so much more. And for folks listening, they know that we like to go backwards before we talk about present day. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about young Arthi and what did you want to be when you grew up? So I had two phases. I think as like a young girl, I wanted to be a teacher because that is like what's in your face all the time. So I went to an arts-based high school and I thought I would do something in the creative world. And so I thought it would be something in the arts. And then in terms of like post-secondary, what did you go to school for? I went to school for political science. And I think that was because the art thing just didn't feel right. And, you know, now I'm like 37 and I've now diagnosed myself and then been clinically diagnosed for ADD. And so I felt like I went through so many different phases of trying to figure out which route of academia was right for me. And I remember just having so many different interests, but not being able to juggle them. And I remember when I was thinking about the arts, I was like, I don't think I can make money off of this. I don't think this is what I want to do. And I had a deep interest in current affairs, geopolitical like what was happening in the world. I was well read. My dad and I used to watch the news. And so I went to school for a political science, classic ADD fashion. I did really well in certain things, did terrible in others. And then I got really involved in student government. And that's when I got my first taste of working. I realized I'm really good at working. There's something about being ADHD and work 
I think there's the intensity. I think there's like that dopamine hit that you get. I think there's the instant gratification. You then went on to build a really interesting and quite fabulous career in tech. Where did that start for you? I realized I was liking the social media strategy more. And I felt like there was something happening on Twitter and advocacy and politicians. And there was something happening in like community on Twitter. I couldn't put my finger on it. I was like, there's a lot of agencies that are starting. There's a lot of small studios. There's all these tech events. I'm like, what are these events? Like what is happening? And so I moved back to Toronto for that. And then I spent the summer meeting folks, trying to understand who was building what, going to a lot of events. I went to TEDx Toronto. That's where I met Satish, my husband, and his co-founder, Vern, who had just started this very small agency called Jet Cooper. I had only seen it on Twitter. And I was like, what, what do you guys do? What are you building? Yeah. And they pitched me on coming in because I was looking for a job. And I almost went back to politics, almost went back and did like some policy work. And I ended up just meeting them for a coffee, went to their office and I was marveled. A world like this exists. You walked into the Jet Cooper office back in the early days of Toronto Tech and they had this blackboard wall where everyone signed in with their Twitter handles and it was like bright chalk and there was all these like cool young people around desks. And I was like, I thought this only happened in like Silicon Valley. I didn't realize that could be possible in Toronto. And so they were like, well, we're building this agency. Satish is doing business development. Vern is our creative director. We don't have anyone in the middle to do project management, do ops, help build the business with us. So that's how I got started in tech. And I think that for folks listening, you and Satish were not together when you initially joined Jet Cooper, right? No, 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 no. Yeah. So it happened over time. Over time. Yeah. Just for folks listening, because I know you worked with Satish at Shopify and at Jet Cooper. Jet Cooper was acquired by Shopify, which is super exciting. But Satish is still at Shopify and you're no longer there, which we're going to get into later on. This is kind of off topic and I don't want to spend too much time, but I'm just curious. I have to ask. How many people watch and listen to Girlboss, Avery? This isn't for them. This is for me, okay? (laughs) This is purely for me. Did you know when you initially met him? No, I think being South Asian, being Indian, there are very traditional career paths, right? And so if you're in tech, quote unquote, you only work at a big firm, like you work at Microsoft. And so for me to see a South Asian man who he was like a year younger than me, kind of be very risky was just fascinating. So I had a lot of respect for him. There's like a stat out there about how many folks actually find their life partner at work. It's actually very high. And it just ended up working out for us. It wasn't easy. As someone who has always been a feminist, as someone who's always been a leader, I was in the press and media even way before Satish ever was. It was, I don't think it was like I had to overcome my ego, but in a sense I did where it was hard to be with someone who was the leader. We often joke that we have spent more time together than most couples because we've worked together and like we've worked together, worked together, right? I ran product marketing at Shopify. Satish ran one of the biggest product groups. So like we have worked together, worked together and often been on opposite sides of like every argument. So yeah, we've just like spent a lot of time together. I've never dated anyone that works in the same industry. So generally speaking, the majority of the people that I've been in relationships with have truly and honestly not cared much about what I do on a daily basis. And I think, I don't know, there's a part of me that romanticizes what it would be like to be with someone that like knows what's up. But I'd imagine that it comes along with its own challenges as well. The last thing I'll say, it's listen, it's amazing because you're on a different 
playing field in terms of context. You can just pick up on a completely different level when someone's in the same industry. I will say the hard thing is, is both of us are very ambitious. We both made money. So we both come to the table with very equal weight, I think. And the other thing is, is like, we don't really take each other's BS. And this is where I romanticize the opposite, where I'm assuming you're not in the same industry. You can go and complain about people or you can go complain about the job or you can go complain about things. But when the other person knows They're not going to be on your side all the time. Sure, they're your partner, but like we can't coddle each other, which I think is really hard. And so we have some rules around being like, you have to pretend like you don't know anybody or anything in this. And I just need to talk to you as my partner. And so, yeah, we're we're very good at that now. But I think it's hard because sometimes you just want your partner to be like, oh, that sucks. (laughs) Did you ever think you were going to build a career in tech? No, no. I thought you had to be really good at math all the time. And then tech just felt like, oh, you have to go learn how to code very complicated things, right? So I always saw myself as not a part of it. And then when I started working is when I realized, oh, I'm a good marketer. I can actually market anything. And then when I got into tech a little bit more, you know, from an agency perspective, we were working with small businesses who were just starting out building their product. And at the time when I started in tech, this was like 2008, the world was collapsing. And so there was a lot of startups. And there's a lot of people who were betting on mobile and betting on all these like new pieces of technology. And I was like, oh, as a marketer, I actually understand the intersection of tech and culture. And that's where I found my value. And even at Shopify, right? Like there was like light bulbs going on in my brain where I'm like, wait, no, no, no. We're on like the precipice of like a huge cultural revolution when it comes to retail, fashion, tech, small business. And as like a fashion girl, an art nerd, and a marketer, I was like, this is my time. That was my time. I remember when we got acquired and I was like, I'm going to make every cool brand use Shopify. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about Shopify then. You ended up working at Shopify for around eight years. Tell us about your time there. Yeah. Uh, One caveat that I'll always say when I talk about that company (laughs) is when I was at Shopify, there was nothing that I loathed more than alumni talking about Shopify. (laughs) Because when you work in a tech company, it changes every quarter, sometimes even faster than that. And when you work in a high growth tech company, everything is evolving, right? So the work that you did, the impact that you had, the way things worked, et cetera, is not relevant today. I never wanted to be that person, so I will never be that person. But yeah, I can talk a little bit about how I got started. So we went through an acquisition because I was not technical and not a designer. It was very confusing what to do with me. And Shopify was really small at the time. Our CMO was in Toronto, Craig Miller. He's the best. He was like, you know, he spent like an afternoon with me and he's like, oh, there's so many things that we can do here. And at the time he was the CMO and he was building this amazing marketing team that was just amazing technical marketers, understood growth and how to grow a tech business via the internet. What we didn't have at the time was how do we interact with people in real life? Do we need to interact with people in real life? Which areas of the business should we go out and market in real life? And so I started as like a community manager and I very quickly realized that the people who needed to interact with us in real life were small business owners who obviously signed up to use a platform because they knew they needed to digitize. They knew they needed to have an online presence, but they weren't necessarily tech savvy. And that's also, Avery, I think where the light bulb went off for me, where it's how do you make regular people understand this technology? And that's what I made my mission. I started a retail tour, which we basically popped up across North America in different cities 
I would bring our support staff on the road with me and just had a chance to like interact with these real humans behind these Shopify stores. And that's where people talk a lot about like celebrities using Shopify and big brands. But for me, like the small businesses are the ones that really just, oh man, I feel so strongly for them even still. And that's maybe why I turned into an investor, but that's kind of what I did. That was my impact. And then from there, we're like, we need to run a conference. And so started our first conference. And that's where I just realized, oh, wow, I've now learned our product because I've been on the road with our product. And that's where the leaders at the time were like, you should take on product marketing, which didn't exist. So I got to build product marketing for five years. And that's when I left. Okay. And I'm curious, when did you know it was time to leave Shopify? I don't think I ever had a reason to leave, but I remember I was on mat leave and I had Kabir and there's so many stats out there that say women who are on mat leave are when they realize their potential or they have the first time to like think about things. I just remembered that like creative art theme in high school. And I was like, I need to go do something creative. And it's not because I don't want to be here. It's not because I don't want to be doing marketing and tech I actually really believe in the mission. But for me, there was something that was just calling me that was like, you need to go do other things, whether it's start your own businesses or just like go have a different type of impact. And I don't talk about this a lot because I think a lot of people judge when it comes to privilege, but I actually saw a coach, an executive coach. I love executive coaching. I've always had a coach at Shopify, number of different people. I've had coaches outside. And I met with someone who is essentially like a wealth psychologist, which she works with people who have come into money. And so she works with a lot of people who have had a windfall from tech, whether their company's gone public or they were employees early at Amazon or or other companies or folks that have come into wealth through like inheritance. And so I started speaking with her, I think because our money managers were like, both of you have no idea what you're doing. (laughs) And I met with her and I remember, you know, I was on the cusp of being like, do I want to stay? Do I want to do my own thing? I really like my job. And she said something to me that was profound. She said, a lot of people spend time at their job and that's where they find meaning. But then they find that they accumulate stuff or they like rage and have like different experiences, right? They're like, oh, I'm going to go on vacation or I'm just like working towards a vacation. I'm working towards like buying the next thing. And she's like, and then all of a sudden you look around and you have a lot of stuff around you and sure you've gone to some fancy places, but is that really what you would have done if you unlocked whatever amount of money you wanted to make before you go and do something else? And that was the moment where I started to think about what, wait, what, what, what am I doing? I've always wanted to have an impact in like philanthropy and other things. And I'm like, but I actually have an opportunity to do it at an early age in life, which again is very rare and unheard of. So why don't I just go do that now? And that's when I kind of knew I wanted to leave. And then I stayed for another year and then I left. (laughs) I love this. And you and I have talked about it privately before around like this wealth psychologist. I don't know exactly what you came into, but I'd imagine it was quite a lot. And with all that comes a whole lot of pressure. I mean, you know, we were talking about TikTok earlier, Avery. I've heard on TikTok, you're not supposed to talk about these things. And you're not supposed to talk about wealth and quiet luxury, blah, blah, blah. So sometimes I get uncomfortable where I'm like, ooh, am I showing too much? I don't know. Is becoming a new manager really that hard? Is gossiping at work good for you? Is it okay to take meetings from a salon chair in the middle of the workday? These are the kinds of questions and hot topics we dive into every day on our hit newsletter, Girl Boss Daily. 
What else can you expect? Dream job postings, A-plus career advice, and a few emojis. Because we're fun like that. All delivered right to your inbox. Join 250,000 ambitious women and sign up at girlboss.com slash newsletter. That's girlboss.com slash newsletter. You're listening to my conversation with Arthi. Next up, Arthi shares a story behind her latest business venture, Glee. Let's get back into it. For folks that are listening, like what do you think contributed to the growth you experienced at Shopify? Because you entered in as a community manager, then grew into like leading up product marketing, which is huge. What contributed to that growth? A lot of really great people, uh, really good people, really good teams. I think companies that grow and scale like that, it's not by accident. You know, people say it's luck, it's timing. Sure, there's like a small percentage of that, but it's a lot of people working really hard on a lot of hard things and collectively. And so it just makes you better. And especially in the early days. And looking back at your time at Shopify, I have two main questions. What would you do again? And what would you not do again? I think I would keep taking the risks that I did, right? Which is when you're in a company that's trying to get to the next level, like especially for a lot of people who are listening, who are building their own brands or startups, I always punched above our weight class and my weight class all the time. And I still do that. I feel like I'm not yet there, but I'm always like, okay, I have to like be there or wherever I think there is. And so I think constantly punching above my weight class. What I would not do again is things that you do as someone who's learning how to manage people, right? And I think there's a huge difference between a leader and a manager. I think I'm a great leader. I'm inspiring. I'm charismatic. I have a vision. But I think to be able to translate that into creating teams that can work really well is really hard. And I think because I'm so hard on myself, I'm okay with burning myself out all the time, right? I'm like, okay, let's go. We're on the Girl Boss podcast. I accidentally Girl Boss everything in my life. <laughs> um, and that's just like who I am. I'm like, oh crap, I accidentally Girl Boss this. But I think I did that at the expense of people. And so, you know, you work in a high growth tech company, you work in a startup, you kind of know that going into it. But because I'm so hard on myself, I think accidentally people may have thought, I was being hard on them, but no, I'm hard on the thing. And so I don't know. I think I would manage people differently. I think I would also communicate more, communicate the why more. Yeah, totally feel that. And one thing that I love about this new evolution of Girl Boss is that we're not falling into the traps of these old ways of thinking and legacy ways of working, but we're also like, we're in the nuanced gray area. Yeah, I, I get really triggered when people talk about imposter syndrome, almost in the reverse way, you're going to experience imposter syndrome. And why someone is experiencing imposter syndrome, maybe because you're at the beginning of something. Isn't it amazing that I can put myself in situations constantly, that I am a lifelong learner, that I am at the beginning of something again, and it's humbling and it's scary. And so I just now lean into imposter syndrome where I'm like, why am I feeling this way? Is somebody making me feel this way? Is the 
industry making me feel this way? Is the room making me feel this way? Or am I just uncomfortable because I don't know anything anymore? I'm not the smartest person in the room. No, I do feel imposter syndrome. Sure, I've invested in a lot of companies. I'm an active angel investor. Somehow I was named Canada's angel investor of the year, but I am still learning what it means to invest in companies. It's only been a couple of years. <laughs> I do feel imposter syndrome. Like it's okay. Yeah. So I just, I, I just lean into it. I love that. So I know that you recently started Glee and not so recently, actually. And it's a Glee based skincare brand with your brother Varun and your sister Deepika, who I love both of them. What inspired you to start a direct to consumer skincare brand? It's a funny story. So just going back to Shopify, when you are surrounded by so many people starting such cool businesses and you have the tools to go do it, I think like every Shopify employee must have like so many ideas. It's kind of like how, I don't know if people still do this, but I still buy like domain names all the time. I'm sure now it's like people are saying like TikTok usernames and IG usernames, but I feel like I've always had so many ideas. I always have something on the go and I never followed through with any of them. And even as an investor, right? Like I will invest in brands that I really care about, founders that I'm really excited about, but maybe at max, I'll come in as like an advisor. I'm not gonna like jump on board more than that. But a couple of years ago, my brother was like, you know, he's the youngest of four. I'm the eldest, we're nine years apart. And he's kind of the entrepreneur of the family, right? Like we're an entrepreneurial family to begin with, but he is just that kid that always had a summer business, like, paving driveways, like landscaping, like, you know, that kid that you're like, oh, you're like a business person selling sneakers, like flipping hats, you name it, right? This kid is like the entrepreneur. Yeah, I love that. And so a couple of years ago, my sister and I, because all we do is like shop skincare, we bought a couple of products that were just pure coconut oil. And he was like, this is just coconut oil. You bought this from Sephora? And we're like, yeah, well, I don't know. Is it just coconut oil? And he's like, oh my goodness. And so he's an engineer and he was like, hmm, interesting. And then it was winter and my mom, as usual, is like, put ghee on your lips. And him and I both get very chap lips, very, very chap lips. Like it gets red. It's like not attractive. And so he's always been the kid who has like chapsticks with him, stealing our blistics, et cetera. And so my mom's always like, put ghee on it, put ghee on it, put ghee on it. And for those of you who don't know, ghee is a clarified butter. It's in every South Asian and even beyond then their pantry. And so as a South Asian growing up, you don't necessarily want to put ghee on your lips because it smells like food. And we have a lot of baggage, you know, where people used to make fun of us for having turmeric in our food and now it's like everywhere. So he's like, I would never do that. But, you know, you get older a couple of years ago, it was winter. His lips got really chopped and he tried and he's like, whoa, this is interesting because it's not just like a fat. There's a lot of benefits to it. It's infused with vitamins. It has omega-3 fatty acids. That's kind of like the fat that it is. And so he was like, this is interesting because it, it almost feels like it's like soothing it, not just hydrating it. And he was like, what if we put this in a lip balm? And I was like, oh, ghee on the go. Six months later, he comes to me with a lip balm. And he like made the logo on the Shopify like logo generator. And like, it's in this like cute little lip balm case. And I'm like, what is this? And so my mom, my sister, his girlfriend, we're all like using that. We're like, woo, this is really good. And turns out he went through like 30 different formulas for it. He ended up figuring out how to put ghee in a stable lip balm. And so what we did was we kind of launched it 
almost like a tech product, like very MVP to our community. Didn't think anyone would buy it. We had like a store open, but just to test, like we weren't driving traffic to it just to start seeding it, right? Like we started seeding it to like makeup artists and South Asian influencers and then amazing people like you supported it and started using it. And we were like, oh, this might be an actual business. (laughs) Yeah. I can't remember how many I bought, but I bought like 50 units and I gave them to all of our clients. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I remember it was in like your client box. And so I consider all of that our soft launch because right after we launched it, when we started to get a little bit of momentum and we knew kind of who our demographic was, like a lot of moms were buying it because it was natural. They wanted to use ghee. They were excited about it. Obviously ghee is now growing in popularity. Like you can buy it at Whole Foods and Arwan now, and it's having a moment. People use it in their bullet coffee now, et cetera. So we wanted to like capitalize on all of a sudden people knowing about ghee. And then there's another demographic, which I love to call the new brown girl, which is the young brown girl who does not have baggage of bringing Indian food to school. It's kind of like my three and a half year old who dressed up for Diwali because he wanted to. And I was like, I can't imagine wearing an Indian suit to school. And I find them fascinating. And they were like, oh my God, I love this. I can't wait to like share it with my mom. And so that's when we kind of paused. Like we still had the lip balm available, but we decided to go back to the drawing board. I'm like, who are we as a brand? What kind of products do we want to make? What is Ghee? How do we want to build this company? And so we've been doing that behind the scenes and we're just getting ready to like launch our brand for real. So we're launching May 17th and we're launching a bunch of new products. So we have our lip balm, which I know everybody loves. It's like really smooth, really like buttery, but we've actually changed the formula because we wanted it to be shelf stable for a long time. And so we have a new set of lip balms coming out and then we have a lip mask, which is closest to the lip balm that I feel like our original user base loves. And honestly, it is the best lip mask on the market. And then we're coming out with a lip scrub. So we have like a complete lip line coming out. And then, yeah, like we plan to differentiate ourselves with Glee by not being full face. Neither of us wanted to be skincare founders. We're not out here to like go compete with every skincare brand. We wanted to build an intentional business around how can you pair the efficacy of ghee to your ailments. So that's what we're doing. We're actually for real launching our brand soon. Yes, I can't wait. I actually checked out the website earlier this week and I see like a new Glee coming soon. So I'm pumped for that. And and one thing that I found really refreshing about Glee is that it's for the South Asian community by the South Asian community. And I think that that's something that's quite beautiful and, and something that I'm quite excited to get behind outside of being a huge fan of yours and obviously have used the product. It's amazing. So I really want to talk to you about your other venture. I'm sure a lot of people are wanting to listen right now to learn a little bit more about your experience as an investor, because some people like me want to get there one day. There's probably others that want to perhaps maybe have you invest in their business. And then there's probably others that are like, what the hell is investing? (laughs) How does it all work? So you are the co-founder of Backbone Angels an adventure capital collective that you started with an all-women team of 10 early Shopify employees with a mission to fund the historically underfunded and marginalized genders and folks. What I love about it is you've actually invested in over 50 companies. I have personally, yeah. Yes. And the collective has invested more than 3 million in those businesses over time. I really want to ask this question first, like what's more important, investing in the idea or the founder? I think what's more important, and I hope everyone is learning this in this like market downturn, that is, it's way more important to invest in the the founder and the person, because if you're coming in at an early stage and you're investing at such an early stage, their product, their idea, their business, who it's for is going to evolve. 
and it better evolve for them to like survive, right? Like we're seeing so many companies right now in, I'm not going to use the word, but in this market downturn that are completely pivoting into something else. And so as an investor, you invested in the person, like point blank. And I think that's the hardest part about angel investing. It's different from being a venture capital firm with a lot of analysts and a huge team and people doing a lot of due diligence. I think as an angel investor, you're always betting on that person. Yeah. And how do you know? Yeah, I think Backbone Angels is a collective of 10 women, 10 of us that were early stage at a company like Shopify. And so all of us had to scale very quickly. We had to scale ourselves, our own ability to do things, our teams at such a rapid pace. And that's why I think early tech employees make really great angel investors because we're operators and we've had to sit on hiring boards, hiring a lot of people, going through moments where you're making mistakes in hiring, moments where, you know, you messed up the interview process, moments where, you know, you would have done things differently. And we just did that at such a rapid pace that I think that's what makes us good investors. I mean, time will tell. Angel investing is very tricky, but I think it helps us understand your capabilities, but also, which I think is the most important thing when you're investing in a company that's ready for our investment is, are they able to build a team? Are they going to be able to galvanize and create enough momentum around their idea, whatever that idea may turn into? And I think you get that from hiring a lot of people. And for folks listening who want to raise money, what have founders done to get your trust and your dollars? So what I'll speak personally is what people do is even if they get a no from me or an ignore or they're not on my radar, they'll start adding me to their investor updates. And those are like the smartest founders where I'm like, oh, you get it. You're putting me on your investor updates. You know, based on my other portfolio, I like companies like yours. I probably am interested one day. Maybe it's just like wrong timing. Or maybe even if I'm not writing a check, maybe one day I'll open up my inbox, happen to read an investor update. There's like a call to action or there's like, oh, I'm hiring a marketing person, et cetera. Maybe I'll have the right person for you or maybe I'll have the right intro. And I think that's something that founders do really well, where all of a sudden I'm on an investor update. I'm like, good move, good move. If you've gotten a rejection from somebody or you're not on their radar, I think it shows a lot of humility, but also just like long-term thinking where I'm like, okay, great. I may be able to help you in the future. You may be able to help me in the future. Why would you just take a rejection as like a, I'm never going to speak to this person again. What advice do you have for folks that are wanting to pursue their own venture or start their own business, or perhaps just do something different, but they're too afraid to leave due to like what we call the golden handcuffs, which is AKA the money, the stability. Yeah. I think you have to have a plan, a strong plan, right? Like if you know you want to leave, do you have enough money in the bank or, and how much is enough, right? I think a lot of people who are starting, especially if they're starting direct to consumer businesses, I'm like, you can do that while you have your day job. I think that there's a lot that you can do at work. And I also think that's kind of like where we are in the future of work. Like a lot of people are working from home, but I do think you can carve off enough time to at least have a plan and work towards that exit plan. I think if you're just going to wake up one day and be like, I need to quit my job, then I don't know, maybe you come from like a privileged background where you have enough money to go and do that. But for me, it's like, I always needed that plan. And I think that's really important. Yeah, there's been a lot of like conversations around like rage quitting and all this kind of stuff. I think there's another demographic of people who are being let go, right? There's mass layoffs that we're seeing. And a lot of people who join these large companies, they are no longer there. 
And so I think there's another demographic that we should speak to, which is you may not be able to plan your exit. And if so, you're not planning your exit. How do you figure out what to do and if you should do something on your own? And that's where I've been talking to a lot of people who have lost their job. And I don't know if some of their jobs are coming back. How are you redefining your skills? And how are you doing small things to compensate for that large thing that you want to do? But we also romanticize like passion and doing your own thing. I'm like, yeah, you may be doing something that you're really passionate about, but guess what? You still got to do taxes. Like you still got to do like admin stuff that maybe is not your passion unless you're like a finance nerd. You're an artist. Great. You have to figure out how to sell your products or sell your art, right? So there's a lot of work that comes with going and pursuing the things you want to do. And there's, you've mentioned this already, but the emotional toll that comes along with it, it just feels like such a personal, intimate thing. I'm curious, with all these accomplishments, what do you believe it means to be successful? Are you free? I think freedom is success. I think being able to choose what you want to do, that's when I think you're successful. I think if you're having like a really positive impact on the people around you, that's success. And I think that's completely different what I would have said like five years ago, hell, even like two years ago. And based on your definition of success, do you believe that you're successful today? I'm going to say no. I don't think I am successful yet because I think I'm just always entering new industries. And so if I'm going to keep going to different industries, I'm going to be starting at that, like entering the new box level zero. And so I don't know. I think success is relative and I don't, I don't know if I'm successful yet. I feel like people think success is being verified on Twitter or Instagram or being well-known. And I'm like, oh, that stuff is not not success. Interesting. I feel like everyone goes through waves. Before we stop, I would love to just do a very quick in and out, very quickly in or out side gigs. In. Day in the life in big tech vlogs. Mm, Out. Talking about money. In, please, because it's going to mess us up, especially as women, we don't talk about money. Yeah, totally. Checking emails the moment you wake up in the morning. Oh, out. But I'm also terrible on email. So I don't know. I'm bad on email too. TikTok, in or out? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I had to ask the marketer this. I had to. (laughs) I think obviously in, I don't know, I 37 years old, I realized everything I was going through was actually ADHD. And I went to my doctor and I was like, okay, I don't know if it's TikTok or if I actually have ADHD, but I think I do. And then I got formally diagnosed. So there's some good that's come from it. Okay. And remote work. As a mom, I get vilified when I say out because obviously it's been amazing to be able to spend so much time with my kid, but I don't know. I'm going to sound like a dinosaur, but there's nothing like building with a team together and choose when to do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, is there anything you'd like to leave listeners with before we wrap up? I think that there's a lot of women who are listening who want to start a business, who are entrepreneurs and founders themselves. And I think if you're onto something that's scalable and it's ready for outside money, go and get it because there's a lot of people out there raising capital that barely have an idea on paper. Put yourself out there and don't dismiss yourself until others can. Like, why are you going to do it to yourself? Yeah, I love that advice. Awesome. Well, Arthi, thank you so much for taking this time to chat. You and I will continue this conversation in the DMs. (laughs) Bye, Avery. 
And that's a wrap on my conversation with Arthi. I'm actually friends with Arthi and I learned so much about her journey today. I'm really hoping you got as much out of the conversation as I did. Come back next week for another episode of Girlboss Radio. And in the meantime, please rate this episode or leave a comment to let us know what you thought. It really makes my day to read them. As always, this podcast is produced by Liz Goober, Victoria Christie, and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming. 